I think a lot about how cancer did change me. I think, I do think it made me a better rabbi. I think it, it made me more sensitive to what it means to be a patient and rely on others and sort of even the dynamic of being in a hospital bed and having people sort of seated above you or standing above you. You know, it feels like there's a level of hierarchy there. It's this, you know, your, your place sort of in this very sort of humbling state. I think as a rabbi, I'm now much more attuned to that than ever before. Welcome to Believe in Progress, the American Association for Cancer Research Foundation podcast. Join us and be inspired by the incredible stories of those who have faced cancer with strength and resilience and the medical professionals who are working tirelessly to find new treatments and ultimately a cure. Believe in Progress isn't just about the science of cancer. It's about the human side of this disease. Together, we can make progress in the fight against cancer and bring hope to those who need it most. Welcome to Believe in Progress podcast featuring Rabbi Benjamin David, who is joining us remotely today. Rabbi Ben David is usually the one providing assistance to those in need, but following his lymphoma diagnosis, he discovered that he was in need as well. The avid marathon runner has gradually regained an active lifestyle one stride at a time. David is well known for his love of running, his role as a husband and father of three, and as the senior rabbi at Reformed Congregation Kenneth Israel in Elkins Park, Pennsylvania, he was diagnosed with an aggressive type of cancer known as diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, necessitating immediate treatment. Rabbi Ben had a suspicion it could be cancer even before his diagnosis. The fall before his diagnosis, he had detected a lump on his neck. Although it hadn't caused him much concern, by then Rabbi Ben had already completed 17 full marathons and over 20 half marathons, clocking more than 30 miles of running each week and feeling like he was in excellent health. He ran frequently, would go to the gym often, had a healthy diet, and led a healthy life. It felt as though he was doing everything right. He is a competitive distance runner, and he's completed 21 marathons, including the Boston Marathon twice and the New York City Marathon four times. He's a co-founder of The Running Rabbis, a social justice initiative that works with clergy worldwide to run and walk in the name of worthy causes. He joins us today to share his story of hope with you. I was reading some of your bio. You and I have a little more in common than you may think. My uh, my daughter went to Muhlenberg College. Oh, um, yeah. Yep. Graduated in 2006. Um, okay. I have a grandson named Sammy, um, and I do belong to a Reformed temple in New Jersey. So you and I do have a little bit in common. And I'm a runner, but not quite to you, to the extent that you run. We have a lot in common. Yes, we do. But welcome very much. Really appreciate you spending some time with us today. Thanks for having me. So um, can you uh, tell us a little bit more about your, your cancer journey? Oh, the other thing that we have in common, and my brother also is a cancer survivor, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma B cell. I think your type of cancer slightly, was slightly different than his. Um, but, uh, but tell us a little bit about your cancer and your journey. Yeah. Um, so I, um, I had what I thought was a very sort of benign lump on my neck for a couple of weeks. I was, um, I was 38 years old and eventually figured that I should see a doctor about it. Um, 
which isn't always my first inclination. And um, I went to the doctor and he said, you really need to get this checked out. And, and I said, well, should I be concerned? And he said, well, no, but something like that could be cancerous. So let's just make sure. Um, and to make a long story short, I had a series of tests. And uh, the, the day before I turned 39, um, I was officially diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Um, so um, this was, of course, stunning and staggering to me and to my family. I was really a picture of health. Um, I'm, a, I'm, I'm a runner. I'm a marathoner. Um, I always pride myself on being healthy. I, leave a, I lead a very clean lifestyle. And um, I, I was just totally taken aback and shocked. Um, and, you know, the doctors that I met with very early on said, you're, you're, you're going you're gonna to be in good shape because of your age and because of your health. Um, they were optimistic from the beginning. And that was encouraging, but I still had to go through the treatments. So because of my, um, because of my age and my, and my health, um, they uh, first put me on a very aggressive form of chemo called EPOC, um, which each time I had it, I had to stay in the hospital for a week. So I, I did that four times. Um, and I had the various side effects that people have with regard to appetite and hair loss and exhaustion um and that was all really hard during those weeks but it was also i think for me emotionally harder just being sort of confined to a hospital hospital bed um missing out on my life as i saw it you know i'm to be a rabbi is to be on the go every minute Right. Um, and I, and just the, the, the premise of sitting still was not something I was accustomed to. I was also just not accustomed to being the patient. I'm used to right. being the one who tends to people and helps people um, in various scenarios and situations. And so I would have these, these, um, these chemo treatments and then I would go home and recover for three weeks and um, I, in time, I sort of learned the the kind of the rhythm, the routine of those three weeks of how I would start to come around eventually, just in time to go back in the hospital and do it all over again. So I, I went through that four times at Penn, and then um, and then I had twenty rounds of, of radiation after that, um, also on my neck, and. Um, Again, there, there were no real side effects. It was just having to take this sort of slice of time every day and miss out on my life and my kids. We, I had three very young kids at the time, a little older now, um, and my busy life. And I just, uh, I, was, I was often frustrated by that. But I went through the 20 rounds. I came through uh, well. And... Um, in July of that year, so if the diagnosis and the road really started in January, my birthday is January 17th, and by July I was really uh, given a clean bill of health and I was sort of good to go, but, um, you know, but of course still lived with and still do live with some paranoia all the time. you have annual PET scans or do you, are you beyond that? 
I see I'm beyond that now, but I do see the doctor somewhat regularly and um, other doctors somewhat regularly. Um, you know, so I could talk about all of it, the implications and the lessons learned and where I am now. Um, well, let me ask you, um, when you were dealing with the, when you were in the chemo phase and had to come home, so probably running was out of the picture, like things that you were, you were used to doing, um, that must've affected you psychologically, I would imagine. Big time. Um, you know, so just for the audience, um, I wasn't just like a recreational runner. I was running 70 miles a week, uh, 60 to 70 miles a week. And, you know, I was running marathons two or three times a year. And I was linked up with a bunch of running groups. And um, I was in runner's world a couple of times. And so it wasn't, you know, I wasn't like a hobby jogger. This was a part of my identity. So I, the fact that I couldn't really run a step for about eight months um, was, was kind of devastating. I did try to run once or twice and it just, it just, I couldn't do it. I just couldn't do it. I didn't have the stamina. I didn't have the strength. I didn't have the lungs for it. Um, once I was done with radiation, I slowly, slowly, slowly came back to running. Um, that was very humbling for me. And, um, and as was cancer itself. Um, and I, I just had to be patient. You know, I just had to be patient with myself. You're, uh, I'm assuming you're back to running and training again. Yeah. Thank God. Um, I'm going to run the Philly marathon with the I, AACR. I heard. Thank you very as much. You know. Um, and, uh, yeah, I feel, you know, all things considered, I feel good. I think the things that bug me now are not cancer related. I think it's related to the fact that I may, in fact, be getting older. Um, <laughs> it does have an effect on us. This is what happens. <laughs> um, when you, so you run, I think you've run over 17 marathons, right? I've run 21 marathons, yeah. 21. Um, do you think your conditioning and your, your fitness, though, helped you get through this? Definitely. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think uh, my body was in good shape. And I think my head was in pretty good shape going into it, um, both because of the running and because of my work. You know, I have perspective. I think I'm level-headed. I think uh, I would I would like to believe that I'm, you know, I come with a level of self-awareness. Um, and I think all of that really helped me. Um, and I think the fact that I was coming in relatively healthy did help me with the treatments. Um, and which is not to say that they weren't devastating and kind of horrific in their own way. But I, I do think that, you know, I had a lot working for me. Right. So you mentioned um, that in your role in your profession as a rabbi, you provide support all the time for people. And now the kind of the tables were turned a little bit. Was that hard for you to accept? Yeah, I didn't know what to do with that. Um, you know, I'm so accustomed to this life that I live. I've been a rabbi for almost 20 years. I've had the great fortune of doing this work. Um, and just to be a caregiver and to be there for people at various stages of their lives is something I'm just so accustomed to. Um, you know, I, I say the greatest thing about being a rabbi is the access you have to people. That I'm with people sometimes on the single greatest day of their lives but also I have access to people on the absolute worst days of their lives. 
and uh, no other profession lives at sort of both ends of that spectrum. So to suddenly be the one who was being kind of waited on and helped and kind of helpless um, was not something I was used to doing and, and took some time um, to, to sort of adjust to. And, and even, you know, for my, for my family, we're, we're used to each of us sort of inhabiting a role and, and that's part of who I am. That's part of who I am, not only with congregants, but with my family, with my loved ones, you know, trying to be present, trying to be helpful and empathetic. And, um, you know, to, to not be able to do that for quite some time was, you know, you sort of, it strips you of your sort of being and you, you, you start to wonder kind of, who am I right now? Who am I supposed to be? Um, it's all very unnerving and unsettling. Can you, um, so can you, has can has the cancer changed the way you deal with your congregants? Does it? So you're dealing, I'm sure you're dealing with families that are dealing, that are, that are faced with cancer diagnosis or currently living with cancer. Has that changed the way you go about it and, and how? Yeah. I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm with people an hour ago as, you know, as we sit here an hour ago, I was with someone who's dying, who's going, who is actively dying. And um, I'm, I'm with people who are at the end of their lives often, um, you know, and I think a lot about how cancer did change me. I think, I do think it made me a better rabbi. I think it, it made me more sensitive to what it means to be a patient and rely on others and sort of even the dynamic of being in a hospital bed and having people sort of seated above you or standing above you. You know, it feels like there's a level of hierarchy there. It's this, you know, your your place sort of in this very sort of humbling state. Um, and um, I think as a rabbi, I'm now much more attuned to that than ever before. I, you know, I think I was attuned to it on a certain level before, but I'm I'm much more attuned to that. And you know, what it means to be really present for people who are struggling. Um, I think I have a better grasp of that now. Um, I also think I'm at peace with knowing it's not about what you say. You know, a lot of people could write a whole essay on sort of what people said while I, I was sick, what people said to me. And, um, it's really not about what you say to someone who's sick. It's about being present for them. Um, just being present, a, a non-anxious presence, as we say, you know, someone who's just there and ready to help, ready to listen, you know, not offering platitudes or cliches. And, and your, you know, your daily life as a rabbi, and I, I have a little insight just because, again, I've, I've been involved in, in my temple. Um, yeah. It's, it's morning, noon, and night, right? You're on call and, and have to be available. Is that, is that typical day, day for you? What's a typical day? Yeah, I have one day off a week, which even is uh, sometimes a bit of a myth, um, depending on what's going on. Um, it's not a nine-to-five job at all. Um, you know, my mornings, generally I'm in the synagogue. Uh, I'm honored to be the senior rabbi of Knesset Israel in Elkins Park, PA, a historic place. Um, I'm in the synagogue. I'm writing. I'm emailing. I'm meeting with people in the afternoon. I'm generally out in the community visiting with people, hospitals, and nursing homes, going to people's homes. And in the evening is often when I'm teaching, 
meeting with couples, working with our teens. Um, you know, so that's kind of very basically sort of the, the framework, but more often than not, that gets blown up by some development of some kind and the whole day gets rewritten. But, um, but yeah, you're on call all the time. My phone is always on. I mean, you know, the blessing and the curse of the cell phone is that I'm highly reachable. Right. <laughs> so, right. you know, so I'll, I'll have congregants texting me at 10 or 11 at night. I have people calling me. It's up to me whether I can respond, but, um, so you would say that the coming through cancer and the whole, this whole cancer journey has had, has changed your spiritual life as well. I think I always had sort of a vexed relationship with the idea that religion is black and white, that God is black and white. You know, I think I've been given sort of a more nuanced understanding of tradition, of text, of faith. Um, you know, a lot of people lying in a hospital bed would be tempted to ask, why, you know, why are you doing this to me, God? Right. Or why me, God? Um, and... It took me a lot of uh, strength to not ask that question. It would be easy to ask that question. But I do think God is in community. God is in healing. God is in our own level of persistence and, and patience. Um, you know, I, I don't like sort of that lazy theology that's, you know, God rewards the good, punishes the bad. Um, I think that's all a little too simplified. Um, so I think my spirituality is growing up all the time as I, I would hope it is for everybody. And, you know, and I, and it's, it's my cancer journey has sort of cautioned or challenged me to sort of identify with new aspects of Jewish life and Jewish tradition and to sort of think about Jewish texts in, in new ways. Like for instance, not to go down a rabbit's hole here, but, um, you know, the story of, uh, of Jacob wrestling with the angel, for instance, um, you know, to think about what does it mean to wrestle with the invisible, um, to wrestle with pain, to wrestle with trauma, to wrestle um, with hardship, um, and then to come away from that wrestling sort of renewed and galvanized and strong in a new way. Um, you know, that's a story that speaks to me or, or, or Joseph who was thrown in a pit. Um, you know, what does it mean to sort of climb out of a pit of darkness, a pit of, uh, sorrow, um, and go on living, right? You know, those, those are stories that spoke to me anew and, and, and speak to me now anew. And there's a thousand examples like that. I'm um, sure it's not like a Bible class. I don't have, think. Have you but, ever, um, uh... Have you ever incorporated either your cancer or cancer in general into one of your sermons? I have. Yeah, I, I've spoken about my cancer pretty often. I, you know, I have to be careful. This is something that I think survivors struggle with this. I think this is real. Um, you know, although I'm thinking about it so often, I'm always so weary of speaking about it too often, you know, as if to say, like, when will he stop about the cancer already, you know, it's like enough already. Mm -hmm. So it's like, you know, what's the, what's the societal norm around talking about it and writing about it. And, you know, because I think for survivors, it's always on our mind. And I just feel 
increasingly, um, now uh, seven years removed, increasingly um, aware of that tension. And, you know, I don't want to overdo it. I don't want to exploit it either. You know, um, it's one part of me. It's not my whole identity. It's not my whole story. Um, you know, and um, I, I just feel that I'm conscious of that all the time these days. So it was a, is like the sermon was more of a message about your, your cancer and what you dealt with, type something like that? So after I was sick, so that fall, mm-hmm. I gave a big sermon. You know, we have the high holidays yep. when the whole sort of Jewish world comes to synagogue as we welcome a new year. Right. Um, and uh, that fall, because we had been on the journey together as a, as a congregation, really, I sort of spoke about the lessons I learned and what it meant for all of us to go through this collectively. I talked about, you know, the, the things that I think will stay with me about being hopeful, about keeping a sense of humor, about not being afraid to ask for help, um, and making it not so totally about me, but, you know, for anyone struggling, um, for anyone having a hard time with cancer or with, an, or with another diagnosis. You preserve those sermons. Do you keep them, or they are archived somewhere? I would love if you. I would love to see it. If if you have it, it would be great. Let me see to, if I can get that to you. Yeah. People outside of the congregation, though, like, do you, would would you have advice for people that are you know currently facing you know, just getting a cancer diagnosis or survivors, uh, just about how to go about dealing with this, just in general terms? Yeah. Well, that's a big question too. Um, I mean, I think first of all, feel your feelings, you know, if you're feeling frustrated, if you're feeling angry, if you're feeling sad, don't question it. Don't, you know, don't, I think people sometimes get flustered by their feelings like, oh, how, why am I so angry? Why am I so upset? This is what your body feels, um, you know, so let yourself go there. I think that's important. Um, I do think it's important to ask for help. Um, the whole world's going to come at you and say, what can I do? Right. Which, which is a question I personally resent because now you're giving me a homework assignment of finding something to do for you. Uh, so I learned to say, you know, I learned to have answers for those people. I said, if you really want to help me, look, I love, I love to read when I'm in the hospital. You want, you can get me an Amazon gift card or I really love that whole foods, orange juice. You can get me that. You know, I actually learned over time to have an answer for these people. You know, if you're, I, I said, if you're, if you, if you truly do want to help, here are some things that would genuinely be useful to me. Um, so ask for help, ask for the things that you think would help you, you know, trust your, the sort of army around you. Um, we all have a community. We all have love in our life. You're not going through this alone. Um, I think that's really important too. Um, I also think you have to go out of your way to find joy, you know, that you have to seek out joy actively. Don't just lie on the couch, like give yourself permission to watch the movie that you always laugh, you know, always makes you laugh or give yourself permission to call the person who that, you know, you love talking to, even if you already spoke to them yesterday. So, you know, go out of your way to find the things and to do the things that bring you joy. I think you have to do that. Um, You have to be proactive about that. 
and um, and you have to keep the faith. You know, I choose to live with faith, live with hope. Um, what's the alternative? You know, what's the alternative? How else right. are you going to get out of bed in the morning? We, you chatted about hope, and you know, we're a ACR is a very research focused organization. We fund research. We have the largest annual meeting in the world for cancer research. Um, in your in your opinion, does hope play an important part, important role for cancer survivors and people dealing with cancer? The hope of research, the hope of future. I think attitude counts for a lot. Um, I think you know. I believe in hope. I believe in living with hope. I I think that hope is not something we sort of carry mentally. It's something that sort of infuses our very being. You know, the hope that tomorrow can be a better day, the hope that tomorrow I might feel a little better, um, the hope that tomorrow will be a more peaceful day. I mean, it's a profoundly Jewish concept, too. You know, the the national anthem of the state of Israel is Hatikva, the hope. Right. Um, so I choose hope. I choose to live with hope. Um, I think in partially, as I noted, because what's the alternative, right? Otherwise... Are you going to greet every day with sorrow and with pessimism? Or are you going to get out of bed and say, I believe in today. Um, I'm going to get a little better today. I'm going to feel a little better today. And then the next day I'm going to do that again. And I think, you know, the longer you believe it, the more it becomes a reality. So as I mentioned, my brother, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma B-cell survivor, when he first was diagnosed, um, there wasn't, there, rituximab was just coming on just being approved by the FDA as experimental and yeah. he and he was given a cocktail of rituxan and a chemo cocktail which you know basically saved his life one of our trustees was one of the uh, original pioneers in you know finding and and finding that drug you know de- developing that drug yeah. um in uh, in California and again i think it's just Science is amazing, and I think that there's so much going on right now uh, throughout the world, and there are many potential advances. And so, again, I do believe that hope plays a role in 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 some real positive outcomes. Yeah, hope I think matters a lot. Um, you know, and I would pair that with trust. Um, you know, it's hard for us to put trust in others. Um, you know, we live at a time when we're so independent and we're taught to do things on our own and we're taught to be self sort of reliant, but to trust the doctors, to trust the nurses, to trust the science, to believe in science. Um, and that's hard, that's hard for people to do sometimes, you know, to sort of hear you have, you know, people who have cancer, these are often very thoughtful, articulate people, successful people, professional people who are told to just sort of like sit back and let the treatment take its course. It's hard to be so trusting. That was hard for me. Um, but to do it even in spite of yourself and why, trust. Why it. is it so hard to be trusting? Why is it so hard? Mm-hmm. Well, I think not that there should be a skepticism or, or anything, but I think, you know, the idea that this stranger who I don't know is going to help me, is going to cure me potentially. Um, you know, that this is something I can't do alone. I think that's really hard for people, Mm -hmm. you know, when they do everything else for themselves, maybe. 
Yeah, there's a kind of a whole initiative about trust in science, and we've experienced that through COVID and and vaccines and things of that sort. Education's, you know, very very important here, um, and yeah. people have to be careful. That's a real interesting point that you uh, brought forward. Um, yeah. I just w- want to switch gears for a second. I just want to ask you the 21 marathons, and you're the founder of the Running Rabbis. I saw that in your in your background. Could you yeah. tell me a little bit about the running rabbis and do they still exist? Yeah. Um, so it's, um, it's a group of friends who, when we were in school, we, we would run together and, um, you know, running is sort of by definition, a very selfish endeavor. You're often out there, you're on your own, you're out there for your own fitness, you're out there for your own mental well-being. Um, and I, and my pals couldn't justify giving so much time to something that was so, sort of innately selfish. Um, so we thought anytime we run a big race, let's do it for the sake of a cause, a cause that we can sort of agree on. So we started running marathons for the sake of all kinds of different causes, autism research and helping the homeless, feeding the hungry, camp scholarships. Um, and we just attracted people who were interested and um, it grew and grew. It's sort of a more organic kind of operation where we encourage rabbis to do this and, and really all clergy. And um, and I think virtually every race I've ever run of, of any distance has been at certainly the marathons for the sake of a cause. Nice. Um, you know, giving so much time and energy to something, I, I think there has to be a component of, of altruism. Um, so, you know, with the Philly marathon this fall to run with the AACR, which I also did last year is, uh, is to me, it's just a no brainer. I mean, AACR has been a part of my journey and I'm happy, I'm happy to support it and give back. Well, we're, we're thrilled to have you. What's your, uh, what's your training regimen for the Philly marathon? So you're just, are you into that already or, you, you know, Okay, well, um, not to go down a rabbit's hole with this one. So um, I guess we would call this base building. It's just a lot of miles, a lot of really hot miles these days. It's been brutal here Mm -hmm. in the Northeast, but um, as it has been in many places. Um, So building a big base so that you just have um, uh, a a good engine, um, for lack of a better phrase. And then as we get into the fall, it'll be more marathon specific stuff so that's around you know playing with different paces and you know the kinds of workouts that get you ready to run strong when your legs are fried Um, you do interval training yeah i do all sorts of stuff like that i work with a coach um who lives in flagstaff and um he sends me workouts and stuff and so so Basically, five days a week, week I'm running pretty easy, an, easy, an hour or an hour and 20. And then one day a week, I'll do a workout. So that's, you know, mile repeats, for instance. That's where you run, you know, right. a certain number of miles at a set pace with a break between. And then there's one long run a, day, uh, a week. That's sort of like the – that's what most marathoners right. will do. Right. Um, although the distance of everything varies from person to person. And is anybody running with you this year in the Philly Marathon? Yeah, my brother's going to run. Uh, he's also running for the AACR. Awesome. Um, he's super speedy. And um, Is he a marathoner? 
Yeah, he's run a whole bunch of marathon marathons. He's really much faster than me, and um, so, so we're not time? running together. But um, uh, what, what what will his time be? Uh, you have to ask him, but I'm I'm guessing he wants to be in the two fifty range. Oh, that's flying. Yeah. And how my about you? Qualify, my hope is to qualify for Boston. Okay. Your hope is to qualify for Boston. In in, in uh, Philly, yeah. Yeah. So, but what? So what? What is that for your age group? Three twenty. Okay. That's awesome. Yeah. So you know, that's the the goal is to run smart and safe and get under that time by as much as possible. Well, um, I can't thank you enough for, for taking time out of your busy schedule and your busy day to come spend a few minutes and talk to our great audience of Believe in Progress. Um, we're really trying to open up um, more information, make more people aware of the AACR and the great work that we do as an organization. And um, I'll, be, I'll be at the marathon. I'll be looking for you. And hopefully we'll have decent weather Let's um, hope. And let's let's hope. hope for that. And um, I, I wish you nothing but the best of luck, luck with your congregation and your family. And um, again, great pleasure to, to see you. And um, I'll look forward to seeing you in person in November. Thank you so much, Mitch. Thank you for having me. And, you know, uh, um, I'm here for survivors. I want to give back. I want to give back to the cancer community. People can follow me on Instagram or Twitter it's a good way to start up a conversation and connect with people. So we're going to put um, that information in our show notes. So people okay. have, the, have the ability to get to you. Um, and cool. even, even the, uh, we can put the, uh, the, the temples, uh, uh, website in there as well. Great. Awesome. Well, thank you so much and, uh, have a great day. Thank you so much. Take care. Once again, thank you to our listeners, supporters, and donors. Remember your support drives the progress against cancer please consider subscribing to our podcast, sharing this episode with a friend, and heading over to our website, aacr.org, to consider making a donation. When you donate to the American Association for Cancer Research, your investment in life-saving research propels the important work of the more than 54,000 members of the AACR in driving progress against cancer. You can support life-saving cancer research with any donation you make today. Thank you for listening to Believe in Progress, the AACR Foundation podcast. This podcast is produced by CollegeCast LLC. Please visit www.collegecastpodcast.com for more information. And remember, cancer research saves lives. Mm-hmm.